Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Sage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored we have our third interview with Dr. Jules Goddard. He is the co-author of the book, Mavericks, which we'll be talking about today. So, Ed, how's it going? Ron, if I were any better, it would be illegal, I think. That's really... <laughs> Well, I know this will be a very fast hour. It always is with Dr. Goddard. But let me read his bio in real quick. And and since he's been on, this is his third appearance. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on this. But Dr. Jules Goddard has spent most of his career at London Business School. He is currently on the faculty of the European Center for Executive Development in France. He is a member of the Council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. So I think that begs a question right there. He's been with us previously the first time was back in january of 2015 i can't believe it was seven years ago episode number 27 where we discussed his wonderful book on common sense and common nonsense and then he was back on he was back with us uh episode number 315 in november of 2020 welcome back to the soul of enterprise dr jules goddard thank you ron it's good to be back and hello ed well, since we last spoke in uh, November of 2020, you've been busy. You published a book in March this year, Mavericks, How Bold Leadership Changes the World, with a couple of other authors, David Lewis, and is it Tamarin Batchelor-Adams? Yes. And full disclosure, uh, Ed and I did blurb this book. Jules was kind enough to send it to us in manuscript form. So uh, our blurb is published at the front of the book just to let our listeners know. So we did have a chance to read it, but I loved it. And I think it's a brilliant book. Congratulations on this, Jules. I think it's wonderful. Thank you, Ron. I've got to ask you this. You got Charles Handy to write the foreword. And I always think of Charles Handy. And this, this could sound really Yankee, but I always think of him as the British Peter Drucker. Uh, I love his work. I've, I've read most of his books, I think. So I'll, so I'll start with a Peter Drucker question. Why this book and why now? Yes, that's a very, that's also, I think, a Charles Handy question, by the way. Um, it's a good question. Um, I don't. I think we are all mavericks, uh, but not all of us are able to express our inner self, our maverickness. And the world is short of mavericks. Mavericks, of course, are entrepreneurial, but in more ways than just business. I think, and we need the innovative spirit. We need honesty. We need openness and candidness in this modern world where we too easily self-censor our real opinions, our real views of life. And of course, mavericks are not like that. They blurt it out. They're true to themselves. They're real people. And uh, I think we wrote this book in the hope that people would recognize the maverick within themselves and perhaps find the confidence to express it 
with a bit more confidence. That's wonderful. Because like you say, we, we have the wealth, we have the talent. Let's start putting this to use. I mean, you know, we couldn't have done this probably 500 years ago when you're striving to feed yourself. I think that there is a sense in which individualism is a fairly recent phenomenon in human history. I certainly don't think it goes back before Socrates. And I think that the Renaissance is partly honored precisely because we did, for the first time, enable a greater individuality of voice in society. We welcomed dissent. We liked difference of opinion. We believed that we could only find the truth through, through dialogue. And uh, this individualistic spirit, of course, is part and parcel of the whole business of being a maverick and being comfortable being a maverick. Yeah. T tell us about the etymology of the word maverick. I love this story. Uh, you, you two, you two are going to know this better than me. But Maverick, of course, was I think he was a, a cattle herder or a rancher, wasn't he? A sort of cowboy in the 19th century. And he he became famous because he didn't brand his cattle. And this was regarded as a highly nonconformist and highly individualistic. And his name, of course, was Maverick, Mr. Maverick. And I think Maverick stuck as a way of perhaps describing the nonconformist in society, the person who goes his own way or her own way. But of course, there are just as many female mavericks as male mavericks. And in our book, indeed, of the 30 or so characters we, we interviewed and described, half of them are women. Right, right. You know, you point out that there's 15,000 books out there on leadership. But most organizations and most leaders show very little leadership. I know the world needs more maverick leaders, like you say. But do, do you think that um, they can be common? You think there can be a lot more of them? Well, I hope so. I think civilization depends upon it. We are very, very reliant upon a rather few voices in society. Um, most of us choose to conform, not to speak up, to go along either with the fashion or with custom. But civilization advances because a small phalanx of individuals decide perhaps that there are improvements to be made or at least some experiments to be run, because I do think mavericks are natural experimentalists. And I'm confident that we will have more mavericks. Right now, we're moving through a slightly anti-maverick phase, I think, self-censorship, cancel culture, the fear of speaking up. Uh, let me just tell a very short story that really alarmed me. Um, this uh, appointment I was given very recently to become part of the Council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, which was founded almost 100 years ago by Bertrand Russell, uh, in Britain and publishes the most important journal of philosophy in Europe. Um, this is um, a, a society that's about to celebrate its 100th anniversary. And we've been broken up into small groups. I'm in a group of about six philosophers. I'm the only one who's not a proper philosopher. They're all proper professors of <laughs> philosophy. And one of the questions I said to celebrate the 100th year anniversary is, can we bring philosophy back into the public square? I think philosophy has become, and perhaps business schools as well, a bit too academic, a bit too professionalized. 
And philosophy definitely belongs in the public square, part of the public conversation. And the other four or five philosophers in my group, as one, said to me, Jules, do you seriously expect us to tell the truth in the public square? Some of us would lose our jobs if we were to say what we truly believe. Mm. Now, that worried me. And I think it goes back to your question. Uh, how confident can we be uh, that the maverick voice will be heard? Because if they're right, and they're right, I think, about Britain, and they may well be right about the states as well, because we're not that far apart in terms of uh, fear of speaking up. If that's true, then it's the reverse is happening. We're losing mavericks rather than gaining mavericks. Wow. And, I, you know, we, we talk a, a lot about this, about cancel culture and self-censorship. And wasn't it Orwell who said the, the real persecution that you need to worry about is not from the state. It's from censoring yourself, being afraid it. to speak up. Absolutely wrong. Um, are maverick leaders born? Where are they made? Um, I think they're educated. Yes, I think I think they're made. Um, I th I think that you know we typically contrast nature and nurture as the elements that form us, but of course the third element is choice. It's deciding whom we want to be and the person we want to show up as. If we were to rely purely on upbringing uh, and genes, we would not give ourselves the agency that we've been given, so to speak, by nature to express ourselves voluntarily in the way that we would like. I think it's more important to think that we invent ourselves than that we discover ourselves. And I certainly think it's true that mavericks, if you like, take up the challenge of inventing themselves to be, if you like, the nonconformist, the person who speaks up and makes a difference in the world. You know, you lay out five core characteristics, and we'll probably get into some of those. I'm sure Ed has questions around that. But before, before that, you say mavericks are recognized less by their personality than by their character. But Jules, I know my Myers-Briggs score. Isn't it, you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> yes. What is the difference here? Yes, personality is a modern psychological construct. But of course, character is a moral construct, isn't it? It's the, it's the, it's the, the choices we make in life. It's the recognition of um, responsibility to be not just any old personality, but a particular kind of character. Virtue, of course, in moral philosophy is very close to the notion of, of, of character. And it shows up in the form of virtues such as courage, uh, temperance, uh, prudence, uh, these kinds of things, which very rarely, by the way, feature in value statements in companies, which are usually rather light on morality and quite heavy on what I would call personality. The Greeks thought character was destiny, didn't they? Yes. And, yes, and shouldn't that, it be a big part of education? I, I wish it were more so. I think we still regard education as essentially as the, uh, as the exchange of, of, of knowledge. And of course, that is incredibly important, but it is also the formation of character, isn't it? If as a young kid, 
um, you start to understand notions of responsibility, responsibility to yourself, responsibility to others, notions of kindness, uh, notions of curiosity and boldness of character. This is quite important. If we leave it to the university to help with that, we've left it far, far too late, don't you think? Right. You know, these five core characteristics, I just want to go to the first one, the purposeful belief, the, the passionate belief that things should be better. You know, in the book that of all the people that you talk to, 100% of them said things could be better than they are in their organization or done better. That's kind of astonishing when you think about it. It is, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. What is it? What is it about us that makes the workplace less pleasurable than it could be? It's almost as though work is still treated as a kind of penance, a duty owed to, I don't know, some notion of a social norm, rather than a wonderful way of spending the day with others with a like interest, uh, creating something wholly fresh and new, and feeling an ownership of the workplace, being part of it. This is rather rare in the workplace, I think. We've, we've saddled it with a lot of bureaucracy and an immense amount of hierarchy. And these things don't, you know, they're not congenial to having fun in life, are they, those two elements? And I think the maverick, quite rightly, fights against too much hierarchy. We need some of it, of course. But we also need, if you like, an internal network, the ability to share the ownership of, of what we're doing with others. And we are becoming exceptionally bureaucratic. I, I don't know whether you've had mm -hmm. Gary Hamill on the show, but yes. Gary produced, well, he's a wonderful thinker. I think the best thinker there's ever been at London Business School, if I'm honest, and very, very influential in terms of my development and my sense of self. And Gary's articles in the Harvard Business Review recently about the cost of bureaucracy uh, in a modern society, of course, he was looking in particular at the US economy, and he priced it at $3.1 trillion of needless bureaucracy. That's seven, uh, roughly 17 to 18% of US gross national product is tied up with, um, yeah, being tied up, uh, ticking boxes, wretched processes. We're very, very poor dis discarding uh, stuff that doesn't work in society. And we add and add and add, but never discard. And I think one element of the, of the maverick is that they have perhaps a bit more courage to discard what is clearly wasteful and not working. Yeah. Yeah. Gary loves to say that our organizations are less human than the people in them. Well, Jules, this is great. This is just flying by, but uh, folks, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Check out our Patreon show at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that show is sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds are better than one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh my, my fraud. fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with Dr. Jules Goddard, one of the authors of the book Mavericks. And, and Jules, you were talking with Ron about the word maverick. Yes, as a as a transplanted Texan, we you know we we have to we embrace the the inner inner Texanness of maverick. He was one of the signers of the Texas Declaration of Independence, going uh, go back. So that's uh, my kids are learning a lot about uh, you know Texas uh, uh, history as well, and. Which leads me to this story before we get into your book. And as you and Ron were talking, this popped into my mind. One of my admonitions on a fairly regular basis to both my kids as they walk out the door, uh, and one is a sophomore in high school and the other is in seventh grade, is ask good questions today. Ask good questions today. And my daughter this morning said something that cut me to the quick and I haven't been able to to talk about this much with her because she was immediately to school but this is what she said seventh grade and we're in a a, a, a exemplary school system here in North Texas dad they don't like it when you ask questions <laughs> react to that Jules I, I'm not sure what to do <laughs> already it's seventh grade <laughs> I, my youngest boy, who was at the University of Bath reading politics in his second year, in a small tutorial, he said to his young tutor, a young professor, um, can I embroider the thought we're having now? Can I just take it one step further? And the tutor said to him, Zane, let's walk before we can run. Now, 
If someone at Oxford has told me that when I was a, a student at university, everyone would have been horrified. You encourage thought, you encourage the question asking. To ask a good question is a feat of the imagination. I also like the notion I saw the other day, a question to somebody, to what question is your life the answer? We are problem-seeking, problem-solving, but also in some sense problem-seeking creatures. I think it was Karl Popper who said, all life is problem-solving. But to solve a problem, you first have to specify the problem, to specify the question that's worth answering. It's more difficult to ask a good question than to come up with the answer to it, isn't it? It, most definitely, and it's, it's one of the things that I think I've I've tried to to get better at. I've even sought out you know best questions. Uh, we we we've had uh, author uh, Warren Warren Berger, who's author of a great book called A More Beautiful Question, um, uh, it, it, on, and he and he calls himself a questionologist. So, <laughs> well, love, love talking about that. But uh, back to the education, I think one of the things that's missing, and this is obviously from, I think, primary all the way through, and it's on both sides of the pond here, is this notion that education comes from the same root word that we get extrude from. In other words, it's not about stuffing stuff in to students. It's about extracting it out. And I think if, if people have lost that in business, too, we don't think how, how is it that we extract the gifts that people bring to to as as individuals as humans to their to their job and we're like no just do you do your job and that's an admonition do your job <laughs> exactly exactly I think uh, I'm trying to remember the the it's an it's a U.S. company that Gary uh, writes about a lot um, a chemical uh, business uh, 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 oh never mind I can't remember it but um, the art there was to Find those you most want to work with. Don't accept, don't appoint someone to a job. Work with those whom you love working with, who bring out the best in you, who do extrude, where it enable you to, so to speak, draw out the skills mm -hmm. and interests within. Because in that setting, we're useful to the world. But in a setting where we know we have no power to choose the so to speak the work we do within the enterprise is very very difficult either to find the energy or the inspiration or to make a difference so a point you can't appoint a leader can you a leader is found by others who want to work with them and for them emergent emergent yeah yeah emergent yeah well, let's let's get back to the book because I could well I could go sideways on you and we wouldn't talk directly about the book the whole time and we want to make sure that our our, our listeners hear about it. So you talk with Ron about the the first uh, characteristic, which is this notion of uh, the belief, which which almost everyone holds the same that, that yes things can improve. The next one is resourcefulness, followed by nonconformity, experimental, and then undeterred. And it's along these lines where your survey begins to diverge. Everyone, yes, agrees that there's a belief that we got to make things better. And then the lines of, of the survey start to separate. Before we get there to that separation, what, what came first? The, the, the conversation about, about these characteristics or, and, and calling it a maverick? Or did maverick come first and then you put these questions in place? Uh, the maverick came first and then the questions in place. 
I think we, someone like Charles Handy, who was the great maverick in London Business School, is someone I've always wanted to write about in some sense. So there were figures who we admired as mavericks and always felt that they do not get the due recognition they require, either in business schools or in business. And therefore, how with those individuals that we knew and who influenced us, how can we find not the famous mavericks, in the world. We all know the famous Mavericks. We wanted to write about, so to speak, ordinary people like us who were able to be distinctive, uh, non-conformist, resourceful and experimental. In other words, who brought courage into the, uh, the work that they did. So in a sense, it, it was the Maverick came first and then, so to speak, we unearthed the five attributes that we believe typically belong, certainly to the Mavericks we admired most. And so we, we said, and those of you who purchased the book, you'll see this early on in the chapters. It's all set up with a, with a set of graphics that I think really spell it out. Uh, so everybody agrees that, yes, we need to change. And then the, the very next characteristic, which is resourcefulness, huge disbursement. It's, it's, it, it's incredibly large. I mean, the, the rest of them kind of build on it. But talk about why this resourcefulness is such a big differentiator from those who all believe we've got to fix a problem and then those who connect people and ideas and assets. Well, my notion of resource, I think David would share uh, this perspective. My notion of resourceful is someone who wants to work with others, but of a different mindset. In other words, mavericks attract other mavericks. They like the notion of a network of highly distinctive individual identities. So that you're in a in a mix of thoughts and ideas, if you like, question asking and question answering mindsets. So it's not a hierarchy, it's a network. And it's a network that extends to people quite unlike yourself. So by resourceful, what I mean is tapping in to other minds who see the world differently. And out of this wonderful difference of perspective and solution, will come to a better answer than if we were to either rely on a hierarchy or only to work with those of a like mind. Right, and see, see the world differently than you do is okay. That's that's actually part of the point. That's part of the point, absolutely, <laughs> yes. We're better when we're struggling with a problem and taking it seriously enough to want alternative points of view. It's, it's closely related to the notion of fair process that when we're making a decision in business, we want lots of thoughts. Because if you like, we want everyone to have some sense of ownership of the final of the decision that is made. But of course, many decisions go against our own tastes and preferences. And therefore, how can we retain the loyalty of someone who thinks we've got to the wrong decision? Well, the way to retain that loyalty is to listen to that idea, to improve upon it, to debate it, to be, to be seen to be taking it seriously, so that at least your thought was heard and understood and improved upon, even though it was later rejected. At that point, you're more likely, I think, to commit to the ultimate the decision that has been made. And I think that's a, that's a problem. I've seen this in a lot of organizations where they say, well, look, once the decision is made, you got to get on board. And I, I, I see the, 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 the attempt there, but as you say, oftentimes it doesn't come with a real good hearing of what hearing out of what the, the person who's dissenting has to say. I think so. And, and that's the sense of resourcefulness uh, that 
it, it's um, it's a surrounding yourself with with voices who love dialogue, uh, who are not going to be patsies, who are going to agree with everything you say just because you're nominated as the boss. They're going to be challenging. Uh, they're going to be uh, creative. They're going to see the world in a different way. And it's out of the difference that you come to a view that's better than any single view at the start. Yeah, and I think that's po- possibly what's so dangerous about what of the a lot of the conformity are around things like ESG. We'll ask you about that stuff later, uh, perhaps. But we're already against our second break. I want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. You can listen to all of our 380-some previous episodes, including those with Dr. Jules Goddard that are on there. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here for the third time with Dr. Jules Goddard and his book, Maverick, Mavericks, How Bold Leadership Changes the World. And Jules, you've got a great story. I know Rory Sutherland is a mutual acquaintance, and he's been on the show a couple of times. You've got a great story about him being hired at Ogilvy. I'm not going to go any further, but it, uh, our listeners will not be disappointed when they read that. It's hysterical, as, as most things are that deal with Rory are. Um, you got to talk me off the ledge about something here, Jules, because... Ed, it's so weird. Ed and I were just talking about this last week or maybe the week before. Your book, you say, Maverick leaders are inspired by a problem in need of a solution, a change that needs to be made, an opportunity to right a wrong. And then, of course, you quoted Karl Popper, all life is problem solving. But, Jules, Peter Drucker taught me that when you do nothing but solve problems, you end up fueling your failures and starving your strengths. 
you solve a problem, you just revert back to the status quo. You don't progress. Now, maybe this is just semantics, but I don't think so. I think mavericks, entrepreneurs, they do more than solve problems. They create new things. Now, they may create new problems, <laughs> but, but they create new things. It, where am I wrong on this? <laughs> yeah, I don't think you are wrong, Ron. I think this is, I would express it in the following way, that entrepreneurs, mavericks, do act on the world in order to think rather than think before acting. In other words, we discover what we believe to be true by trying a ton of stuff out. We don't invest too much time on analysis and thought and planning, which is a form of prevarication, a kind of displacement activity. We do a ton of stuff. Some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. Some of it we assumed was silly, but actually turns out to be remarkably sensible. Other things we assume to be sensible and turn out to be absolutely brilliant. So I'm with you in a sense, and I'm with Drucker. I think Drucker, Peter Drucker, would say that one of the reasons why business is perhaps the greatest, most creative activity that man has ever invented, certainly at a free market, is that it does encourage action. One of the problems with modern business may be that we're returning to a belief in planning rather than exper endless experimentation. But that entrepreneurial notion, let's do it and see what happens and form our ideas in relation to how nature responds rather than this endless solving of problems that don't actually engage activity. Would that be fair? Yes, that, you know, you, you quote somebody, Tristan Tazara, I think, let us try for once not to be right. Yes. I love that. Because it, 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 you're not talking about betting the farm, but like you say, bet some fields in the farm. Yep. Bet the fields. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one, of the, one of the images I had recently in my mind is that ideas... Uh, can be spread across a distribution in terms of their quality. You can imagine a normal distribution with the bulk of the ideas in the middle. They're sensible, they're the stuff we've experienced throughout life, they sort of work, they get by. But at the extremes, there are ideas that are either extremely good but rather rare or extremely bad but rather rare. Most of us spend our lives comfortably in the middle, never straying beyond the limits for fear that we'd bump into one of the poor ideas rather than one of the brilliant ideas. Because of course, until we try them out, we don't know whether they're strange because they're brilliant or strange because they're daft. And it's only by doing it, by having the courage, taking our life in our hands and trying 10 such extreme ideas out that we find that at least nine of them probably are daft but the one that sticks is the brilliant one that saves us. And that's, I think, the spirit in business that I like. And I think it's the spirit that Mavericks, as experimentalists rather than planners, bring to the workplace. Yeah, no, that's a great point about the ideas. And uh, it makes me think of Her Herbert Simon's word, satisficing. Most yeah. people just do, you know, enough to be, it's, hey, it's, it, there's a meme going around the internet saying, eh, good enough. And it's mediocrities, <laughs> yep, yep. which is hysterical. Um, 
Jules, you cite some research by George Land and Beth Jarman on creative genius. At the age of five, you have 98% of your creative genius. By the age of 10, you're down to 30%, 15, 12%, age 31, 2%. What's going on? It's back to our conversation about asking questions at school and whether these are welcome or not. And it's back to the question of, are mavericks made or are they born, so to speak? Are they made or are they chosen? Um, What does happen? Um, Playfulness, which is what children do so easily and so naturally, is the basis upon which the child learns fast. And there's something happens late on, a fear of making even the slightest mistake um, that disables us from being the playful person that we could be because mavericks are playful. And it, it, it is, it's probably as much down to us as parents as us as teachers. But I, I, teachers have a real responsibility to bring out the playfulness. I suspect that we remain playful on the sports field more than in the classroom. But in the classroom, we're expected to come to the right answer, even though the right answer is never really the right answer. The right answer is the new answer, the answer that no one had previously thought of. And it's not comfortable at school always being the kid at the back who comes up with the outrageous suggestion. The best moment at my school, an English teacher, Monsieur Desprez, had written an essay on Hamlet at the age of about 16. And rather than toe the line as to what all the great uh, critics of, of Shakespeare had said was the point of Hamlet, I'd just seen it performed at Stratford. And I wrote how it had if you like, impacted me. So I wrote my perspective, thinking that I would be blamed for it. And Desprez took me to one side and said, Jules, were those your ideas? I said, yes. He said, do that, keep doing that. Don't write up other people's ideas, write your own ideas. Now, he was immensely influential on me. Suddenly someone was saying to me, stay with your own voice, go with your own instincts, follow your own nose you know, be your own person. What an amazing piece of encouragement that was. But my suspicion is that most of us as teachers, I hope I'm not like that as a teacher, most of us as teachers want the right answer. The answer that will pass the examination. Right, right. And of course you get in the corporate world and like you say, throughout the book, efficiency, productivity, not be wrong, all of those things come to the forefront. And yeah, it makes you less playful, creative, imaginative. I think so. Um, you got to help me with my cognitive dissonance on this, Jules, because I want I want to believe that everybody's got a chance to be a, a maverick leader. Everybody should have a go. I do believe that ordinary people do extraordinary things. However, And I know that you talked about the great man theory of history and how Tolstoy and War and Peace argues against that theory. However, I know last time you were on, or maybe it was the first time you were on, we talked about Charles Murray's book, Human Accomplishment, where he documents 4,002 people whose shoulders we stand on as civilization for all the great inventions. And even if he's wrong by a factor of thousand, 
that's still a tiny sliver of the all the people that have ever been around what am i missing or is am i just gonna have to live with this contradiction you speak i would say as someone like the four thousand both of you do if we only made the four thousand eight thousand we double the quality of life we do not honor our greatest people do. When I lived in France, there was a little custom which I liked very much. I was part of a family business. And once a year, there were 50 uh, masons and carpenters and plumbers and electricians who worked for us. It was a little uh, construction company. Once a year, the 55 craftsmen would hoist a little French flag up a pine tree. And at the top, it had the label, honor au patron, praise be to the boss. We very rarely thank the 4,000, do we? The, the modern tendency is to believe that they're greedy, that they're exploitative, uh, that they're lucky. We're very reluctant to say that the 4,000 put themselves out in the world and created a difference out of not necessarily just the kindness of their heart, but certainly the bravery of their soul. Unless we honor great. I'm thinking of America at the end of the 18th century, the Ben Franklins of this world, the Hamiltons and so on. These were men who honored perfection, not perfection, who honored um, the 4,000, the spirit of, of, of freedom. Gosh, we miss that nowadays, don't we? Think of what America created in only 150 years as a beacon. But the rest of the world, pretty much, has tried to emulate ever since. That simply came from a society that honoured the, the kind of mentality that belonged to those 4,000 and made it 40,000, 4 million. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I, it, it, it's just, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to it. I, I want to read what Tolstoy said about it. Um, and it's not that I want to believe in the great man theory of history, but I just, it, I, I do know it's a tiny sliver of people that really propel, but, but all the ordinary people do too. I mean, we've talked to Deirdre McClowski about this and she's more on the, no, everybody has a chance for a go. Yes. Yes. She's, she's absolutely brilliant. She's inspirational. Of course, she's a wonderful maverick, absolutely amazing maverick. But yes, the, of course, in the in the right society, you get you'll get your four thousand, but those four thousand still rely upon the four million that that bring those thoughts and ideas into reality, that make them work, that that exemplify them, that that, that crystallize them. So you're right, McCloskey is absolutely right. Of course, we we need, so to speak, those of us who are never going to be part of the four thousand, but we can be supportive of the four thousand and express the ideas of the four thousand. But we got to get to the four thousand first, haven't we? Or otherwise, right. it's Bonanta. <laughs> I loved how you uh, said towards the end of the book that curiosity, emotional intelligence, entrepreneurial courage, and moral integrity are going to be the new characteristics that are going to be really important in in the age that we live in. And you said the balance of power is going from the hands to the head to the heart, and mm. I just thought that was beautiful. Mm. 
I hope it, <laughs> I hope it's happening, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're right. I think we are. I think at least we're talking more about it than I think we ever have been about some of these so-called softer skills, which are actually all the hard ones, are really important in business. I noticed that you'd had earlier in the in the program a PJ O'Rourke, who of course sadly died very recently. He is an expression of the best of humanity, mm -hmm. don't you think? Yes, I, I think humor is so important, and just th that way of looking at you know what did Orwell say about each joke is a tiny revolution. Th th that is so true. People like John Cleese, you know, even Rory in his own way Rory is definitely. amazing with his humor amazing because yes. it's got a point and with uh, such humility in rory's case such humility he's a he's a he's a catalyst uh, he's one of the four thousand that produces for all those that meet him and listen to him um and work with him uh he is one of the he's igniting the maverick spirit certainly within ogilvy and certainly within the behavioral science community he's making huge differences to to quality of our culture agree jules i i thank you so much i'm out of time but i just wanted to thank you ed's going to take you the rest of the way home one real quick question at the end of this book there's a picture of another book called what philosophy can teach you about being a better leader when's that coming out that's out that's out <laughs> that, ah. came out, that came out i think four years ago oh so if there's a chance to talk about, about yes. that, I would absolutely love it. If you want to come back on and be tortured, yes, we'd love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jules. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at bearsage.com. And do check out our show notes, thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll link up to all Jules' books. And now a word from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh My Fraud. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well we are back the book is mavericks and one of the authors is jules goddard and as is usually the case jules uh you know i prepared a big list of questions uh, I I've also have a page and a half of notes from the conversation that you and Ron have. Uh, and I didn't get through even a, a, a quarter of the questions that I wanted to ask you. So, well, absolutely have to have you back. But I, I did want to make sure that I, I got to this. And that is in chapter 80 of the book, you talk about the maverick forms of organization. And I'd like for you to, to, to paint that picture for our audience. How can organizations be created uh, around the with the organizational structure and culture that can facilitate the expression of maverick leadership. Yes, it's a big question, Ed. But I, one way in might be to think about why the insides of organizations don't look more like the outsides of organizations. In other words, why don't we bring market processes, more market processes within the firm? It's often when we duplicate thinking it sounds wasteful but of course if you encourage independent teams to ask the right questions and come up with better answers to them you're more likely even though there's the cost of the duplication the best of the idea will comfortably pay for all the ideas of the that are rejected in the pursuit of that idea I think it was one of my teachers at the Wharton School many years ago, Erwin Gross, who suggested through very carefully designed research that in an ad agency, when you win a piece of business, put three independent teams on it, the best of three will comfortably pay for, if you like, the cost of three. And I think that, in some sense, the organization that feels more like a marketplace, an exchange of ideas, uh, that ideas can come from anywhere. One of my very early experiences of this was when I was working uh, in uh, J. Walter Thompson in London. Uh, there was a there was a classic brand. It was a it was a black currant cordial, uh, and uh, it had been around for a hundred years. And the senior people from the client and the senior people from the agency were together to try and find a, a way of rescuing this brand brand and put it onto a growth curve again. And as a special favor, they'd invited someone they just recruited from Cambridge, I think, a, a young account manager to join the meeting. And as the meeting began, this young boy said, I think there are three problems with this brand. And I'm going to call it the three S's. It's sticky. The bottle gets sticky as soon as you pour the first glass of juice. Uh, it's too sweet, the second S. Um, and, and it stains. If you spill it, it stains the tablecloth. And of course, the agency turned on this young boy and said, how dare you think you've got the solution to a problem that's been around for 50 years amongst people who've worked on this brand for 25 years at least. And he was shut up and he apologized and so on and never said another word. There was this long five hour meeting at the end of which 
the senior uh, director of, of, of Ribena said, I think I've got the solution to this problem. I think it's, there are three problems with this drink. And of course, he replicated the young boy. <laughs> we very, very rarely, we very rarely in business recognize that creativity belongs to us all. At the moment, creativity is only allowed for quite a small proportion of people at rather senior levels of the business. Uh, and I think, if you like, the organizational format I'm thinking of is more market-like, more meritocratic, more open, uh, slower, because I think it's only when we slow down that we can get to better solutions, more organic, uh, more like uh, an informal gathering, fewer meetings and many more conversations. Just quieten down a bit and allow the creative juices to flow. So I'm going to make a connection from an article I read this morning. My uncle sent me. This is in the Wall Street Journal this morning about was Jesus a socialist? <laughs> and and I don't want to go through that that whole the, the that, but I want to read you this line because I think this is exactly what you're talking about. He in, this author makes a distinction between organizations and orders. He said we the early church was not socialist because it wasn't an organization, <laughs> right? So this is the quote, organizations are consciously crafted to achieve the goals of their members. Orders are spontaneous and emergent, arising out of the interactions between organizations. Wonderful. And I love this idea of an order versus an organization. <laughs> and I suppose the story of the church is one, the story of every religion is moving from the order to the organization. Right. <laughs> Well, the young enterprise is an order, mm -hmm. uh, but there's something in the growth of the organization that gradually turns itself into what we see as an organization, and that spontaneity is lost, and we replace the spontaneity with endless plans and, and, and processes and policies. <laughs> We must, we must not, the great line from House Ron, there, we must not let results get in the way of our process. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, this is terrific stuff, uh, Jules. Uh, we've only got about two minutes left, and I, I just wanted to ask you quickly uh, about a notion that I've thought about for a long time. Uh, in an interview with uh, Katie Couric, the, the guy who landed the plane in the Hudson, uh, Chesley Seldenberger, talked about have, he, he said his job was to successfully crash the aircraft. And I love the, this notion of a successful crash. Just wondering, is this what you're talking about in business where we need to, we need to sometimes successfully crash some of the stuff that we're doing instead of building on top of it? No, it's a brilliant thought. What a wonderful metaphor. All truths come through metaphor, don't they? When we're most poetic and least literal, we keep bumping into amazing truths. And what a good truth that is. There are, so many, there are so many things in business that deserve a successful crash. If a problem's important, if we're not willing to successfully crash it, we'll never get to a true or a really good answer, will we? We never, the first answer that comes to mind is never the right answer. It, it, if, the, if there's unanimity in a meeting, you know it must be wrong. There needs to be, there needs to be some who dissent to recognize, gosh, it might have some merit if there's some sharp disagreements about it. Right. Mark, Mark Twain's great quote about whenever I find myself on the side of my majority, I know it's time to pause and reflect. 
Well, we are out of time with Dr. Jules Goddard. Thank you so much for appearing again on The Soul of Enterprise. Ron, what do we got coming up next? Next week, Ed, we have Michael, was it Kravchik and Blake Oliver, and we're going to talk about what's wrong with CPE. Oh, very practical. <laughs> <laughs> talk about that. All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours then, Ron. All right. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes with our conversation today with Dr. Jules Goddard and his books. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at barrisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out.